A warm welcome again to Christchurch uh, this morning. My name's John T. Rhodes. I'm the minister here. Uh, it's good to have you with us, uh, particularly as ever. If you're here for the first time, um, I hope you feel really welcome. Uh, we, um, we love seeing new people week by week. So wherever you're at, whether you're a convinced Christian, whether you're totally sceptical, um, it's good to have you with us uh, here this morning. Welcome. Uh, at the centre of all of our, our services, uh, we turn to look at uh, the Bible. Christians have always held God's word or the Bible rather, to be God's very words to us, what he says to us, not just what he said to people years ago, but what he says to us today. Uh, So we're going to read now from uh, Luke's Gospel and the 23rd chapter, Luke 23. Uh, In the Church Bibles, that's page 884. So page 884, uh, Luke was a doctor who, at the beginning of his account of Jesus' life, says that he, he went around interviewing people, talked to people, got all sorts of sources together in order to put together a, an accurate account of what happened. And we're jumping in uh, towards the end at the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I'm actually going to start reading at verse 32. Uh, I made a mistake on the service sheet, that's my bad, but verse 32 And Jesus at this stage has been condemned to death. Uh, He's been beaten. He's been led uh, away, carrying the crossbeam. And we join him, verse 32, uh, just as he's about to be crucified. So let's hear the, the word of God. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, Golgotha literally, Uh, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having breathed his last, having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who'd followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. 
Let me pray. Uh, Father in heaven, this is a living word, so give us, uh, we pray, living hearts to receive it. Pour your spirit again uh, on your word in order that um, we might hear, uh, believe, and rejoice. Bless us, we pray, uh, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're coming to the fourth and final uh, in our little series, uh, What's It Like to Meet God? And this morning, the, the question I want to ask in particular is, what's it like to meet God when I'm helpless? Okay, when I'm helpless. And to do so, uh, first of all, we need to, we need to set the scene. Uh, come with me to a hill. It's a hill outside Jerusalem, a hill described as a skull hill in our passage, verse 33, a hill that's called the skull. Maybe the, the hill was shaped like a skull. Maybe because it was the place of execution, there were just a lot of skulls there. Uh, we don't know. But as we come to that hill, we, we'll see three men, uh, three bedraggled men, three men who've been whipped and beaten, three men carrying on, on their backs planks, heavy planks of wood. Uh, three men who are being taken uh, to be crucified. Uh, the gospel accounts, Luke's account, and indeed the others, Matthew, Mark, uh, and John as well, are pretty brief about the details of what happens. Do you see? He, he deals with it really just uh, in one sentence. Uh, verse 33, when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. There's no details. And no blood, guts, and gore. But we know what happened would have been horrendous. Uh, crucifixion was a barbaric method uh, of execution. Uh, so barbaric, in fact, that the Roman Empire didn't use it on, on their own citizens. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. Uh, crucifixion wasn't spoken about it in polite company. Uh, the condemned man would have been whipped, beaten, scourged, forced to carry the beam, as I've said, and then either tied to the, to the plank or, or have his wrists nailed to it. The crossbeam would be uh, attached to a, to a stake that would be in the ground and the stake would be raised up and slowly the, the man would, well, suffocate, unable to breathe. Sometimes they, they'd put a little stick in the, in the, the centre beam so that the, the condemned man could support his weight somewhat, but after a while, your strength would go and you'd slowly suffocate uh, to death. It was a shameful way to die, a horrible way to die. And yet, bizarrely, that the crucifixion and the cross have become the centre of the Christian faith. Even if you're totally new to Christianity this morning, you, you probably know that, that, that Christians for some reason, seem obsessed about the cross. Um, churches, posh churches at least, sort of nice old church buildings, are often built in the shape of a cross, aren't they? Uh, you'll see Christians wearing cross necklaces. Maybe even some of you today have got a little cross necklace on. You could go into some churches and, and you might see a, a, a cross on the wall or uh, on the table at the front. And throughout the New Testament, this, this book that seeks to explain the significance of, of the story we've just read, why it matters, uh, the early Christians are, are, are always wanting to talk about the cross. Here's just a couple of verses. Paul, who's one of the great preachers of the, of the first century, says this, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to boast in anything, he says, apart from the cross. Or he says that the message of the cross, the word of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are dying. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where do you see God's power, says Paul? At the cross. Or elsewhere. Uh, He says that that, that God, um, through Jesus, reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood on the cross. It is the cross, the cross, the cross, the crucifixion that the early Christians kept coming back to as the centre of their message. And the thing is, we're kind of used to it, aren't we? Again, even if you're new to Christian things, you, you, we're used to, to cross jewellery at the very least. But, but if we were able to, to take the kind of cultural glasses off, if we were able to, if you like, get out of our, our, our comfort with the symbol of a cross, we, we should see the cross as something totally, totally disgusting. Uh, the cross is the equivalent of the hangman's noose or, or the lethal injection syringe. But what do you think this morning if you'd come in and, you know, maybe I'd seen you on the way in and, oh, you know, morning, I'm John T, I'm the minister. And you looked and I was wearing a, a necklace um, and on it was a, a, a little syringe dangling, a little syringe. And, and you said, oh, un, un, unusual, unusual jewellery you're into. I said, oh, yeah, it's, it's uh, symbolic of lethal injection. You'd probably be sort of, oh, no, really nice to meet you, kind of through the door, out that door and back out onto the street, wouldn't you? Run for your life. Or if you'd come in and, and dangling on the wall just to get the building ready, this isn't our building, we don't earn it, uh, but just to sort of get the atmosphere right, we dangled a, a hangman's noose on the wall just to get you in the, in the right mood for church. That, that is the kind of shock we're meant to feel. Go back to those verses. Far be it from me, says Paul, to boast in anything except the lethal injection syringe. Uh, The word of the hangman's noose is foolishness to those who are dying. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. God's power is seen in the noose. God decided to reconcile all things to himself, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace through the lethal injection syringe. That's the kind of sort of shock, disgust, horror that anyone in the first century would have felt when hearing about the crucifixion or the cross. And we've just sugarcoated it because we're so used to it after 2,000 years. But it was a terrible way of execution and yet still somehow central to God's plan. Again, if you're new to Christian things, um, if you can understand the cross, you've got Christianity. Okay, the Bible on your lap is a big book. I know there's lots of stuff in it. But if you can understand the cross, and that's what I want to think about this morning, then you've got the essence of Christianity. Now, all of us have still got loads more to learn. doesn't matter if you've been a Christian a minute or 80 years. There's always more to learn, sure. But the cross is at the centre. Why? Uh, why this shameful death? This shameful death that for Jesus is made even more shameful by the company that he keeps. And it's really the company that we're going to think about a little bit this morning. We're not going to go all the way through the passage I read, but I, I want to think about the, the two men who accompany Jesus. Do you see them there in verse 32? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, with Jesus. Uh, they're criminals. Literally, the word is just a, do- a doer of evil. And we don't know exactly what they did, but it's something worthy of death, at least in the eyes of the Roman state. Uh, The other Gospels use the word robbers uh, or thieves. So these two men are often known as the thieves on the cross, as Jesus is crucified, one on his left, one on his right. Two thieves. Again, Jesus claiming to be the king of the Jews 
hanging, dangling from the hangman's noose between two robbers. Shameful. And thus he's mocked. Did you pick that up as we went through? He's, he's mocked by everybody. Uh, three times, basically the same taunt uh, is used. Three different groups. Uh, first of all, 35, verse 35. The little numbers are the verse numbers, by the way. Verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers, that's the rulers of the Jewish people. Um, Jesus is a Jew. Uh, the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. Same thing in verse 36. This time the soldiers, the Roman soldiers. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then in verse 39, what are the criminals? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Save yourself. If you're claiming to be God's king. You're claiming to be God, in fact, in the flesh. That's the Christian claim about Jesus. A God who has become man, remained God, but also become man. If we'd read all of Luke's gospel this morning, we'd have read about Jesus stilling the seas, you know, a storm whips up. It looks like the boat he's in with all his disciples is going to be overwhelmed. They're going to drown. And and actually he just speaks a word and and the sea goes calm. We'd have read about him raising a a dead child back to life, giving sight to the blind. We'd we'd have read about him being able to feed 5,000 people just with a few loaves of bread and fish. We'd have read about him being able to say to a paralytic, get up, take your mat and walk. And the man just getting up and walking. We'd have read about him speaking to a man who, whose hand is so withered he, he can't use it. And Jesus saying to him, stretch out your hand. And just the man hearing those words, the power was there for him to stretch out his hand. Jesus has seemed more powerful than every force that could come against him. And there he is, dangling on the hangman's noose, strapped to the lethal injection bench. And, and you can see why, perhaps, the different groups mock him. His own people, the Jewish leaders, the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers, and the man crucified with him. You're so powerful, save yourself. It's not very godlike behavior, is it? Dangling on a, on a gibbet. It's not very godlike behavior, being slowly strapped in. Uh, to the chair before the electricity is pulled and you're electrocuted to death. It's not very godlike behavior, hanging on a cross, choking, suffocating on your own blood. A real God would would show power, would show his power. A real God would would do something spectacular, would show, ha ha, you think you can get me, but no, look at this. A real God would come down. And we're not that far away from those thoughts ourselves, are we? Perhaps, again, you're new to Christian things. You think, well, if there was a God like all my Christian friends keep banging on about, all these guys who are walking around with a jewellery with a hangman's noose equivalent on them, if there was a God, surely he'd make it more obvious. You keep telling me there's a God who made everything, a God who is all-powerful. Why is he not making it clearer? Uh, send a bunch of angels into, into the sky with trumpets and I will believe like that. Uh, end all the wars and I will believe like that. If you are a God, you would make yourself known more clearly. And yet Jesus doesn't. He stays strapped to the cross. 
God, if you were there, surely there would be a way of making yourself known more powerfully. Surely you've got something more than, than just a book. Just a, a preacher on a Sunday morning in a slightly manky building uh, in Leeds. Surely there is a way of making yourself known if you're God that is more impressive than this. But God says no. This is how I work. And the third accusation, the, the one from the thief, uh, even adds something more, doesn't it? It's the same question again, but with a, with a, with a little bit extra. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Not just save yourself, but save yourself and us. Surely, if you are the, the, the saviour of all mankind, Jesus, surely you'll be able to save me now. Get me off the cross, says the thief. Perhaps he'd seen or, or heard what Jesus had done. He'd surely heard, at the very least, who hadn't. All that power, Jesus, and here I am right next to you, and you are not rescuing me. I've seen you bring dead people to life. I, I have seen you make the... Lame walk, the blind see. I know you could do and you won't. Why not? Why will you not save me? A real good God would not let me suffer here like this. A real God would intervene in my life as I want him to, when I want him to. And again, our hearts are very in tune with that song, aren't we? Very like that thief. If you're really there, God, why are you not doing what I want when I want? If you were really loving, as I keep hearing, then you would have taken away my illness, loneliness, sickness, depression. You would have taken away the problem people in my life, the difficult situations I'm in. You would have removed the, the sin that I battle with, the person that frustrates me. You would, frankly, just answer my prayers as I want them to be answered. See, I don't think many of us, if we're honest, could say we're that far away from the rulers, the soldiers, and the thief. And yet Jesus does nothing. He does nothing. Of course he could. Of course he could. He's all-powerful. It's not that he lacks the ability. It's not that he can't get down. It's not that he can't save himself, but that he won't. Why not? Why not? And if you can understand why not, if you can understand this morning why Jesus won't save himself, rather than just thinking that he can't, then you'll have got to the heart of the Christian message. And the second thief is there to help us. Verse 40. The other, this is the other criminal, the other, the other thief. He rebukes him, he, he, he answers back to his friend. Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In many ways, I want to be as simple as I can this morning. I don't want to try and say anything particularly new or uh, clever. I think it's a preacher's job to try and be as clear as he can be. And the first time uh, someone explained this passage to me, they, they explained it with just A, B, C. Look at what the thief does. It's just A, B, C. A admits. Do you see that? He admits. 
Uh, he admits that he is getting rightly punished for his wrongdoing. We are under the same sentence of condemnation, verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward. Uh, the due reward for our deeds. That the thief says, look, I, I don't deserve any better than this. I am a thief, I am a robber, I am a criminal. I don't deserve to be treated better. He acknowledges he is a sinner, to use the Bible's language, and that he is justly being condemned, punished. And the Bible would say, look, that is not unique to that thief in that place, but actually none of us have lived as we ought to. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us have ignored our neighbor, not loved them as we should. All of us have fallen far short of the standard God justly calls us to. But the thief doesn't just admit, A, there's also a B, he believes. Uh, He turns to Jesus and says of him, this man, verse 41, this man has done nothing wrong. The thief believes that Jesus is innocent. If we were to read all this chapter, um, we'd see that time and time again, people look at Jesus, even the enemies of Jesus, and keep concluding he hasn't done anything wrong. Uh, we saw it with the, the centurion uh, in verse 47. As, as Jesus dies, the centurion, the, the head of the execution squad, praises God saying, this man was innocent. No one could hold a, anything to Jesus. No one could hold a single charge against him. Jesus lived this spotless life, this perfect life, this sinless life. And the thief believes that. He is sinless. Alone, he is sinless. And he is God's king. He turns, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He acknowledges that Jesus is God's king, God's Messiah, God's savior, if you like. And so he admits his sin. He believes Jesus is dying in his place. We'll come back to that more in a minute. And see, he he just comes empty-handed. Remember me. That's all he says. Remember me, Jesus. Save me, in other words, when you come into your kingdom. Admits his sin, believes Jesus dying innocently in his place, and see, commits, or comes rather, to Jesus. Comes empty-handed. And incredibly, look at Jesus' response, verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, says Jesus. Today you're going to be in heaven, in paradise. A few more Minutes, hours on the cross for the thief, and then paradise forever. Just like that. Just like that. I noticed, by the way, just as a bit of a sort of side point, that Jesus is going straight to heaven. He's going to be buried, a body will go into the ground, but his soul, his spirit, if you like, is going straight to heaven. And none of this Jesus going to hell for three days and spending three days wandering around in you know, the underworld, all these kind of bizarre things you read about. No, he dies and his, his human soul goes straight to heaven. A, B, C, and the guy's in heaven. So for the rest of our, our time together, let me ask just two questions. And the two questions to try and understand how this man ends up in paradise, this thief, this criminal. And the two questions are simply, what has the thief done and what has Jesus done? What has the thief done and what has Jesus done? What has the thief done, first of all? What has he done to ensure God's forgiveness, to ensure his eternal life? What's he done to achieve it? Do you see? Nothing. He has done 
nothing. How could he? He is pinned to a cross. He can't move. He can barely speak. His life up to this point has clearly been one of rebellion. However harsh the Roman rulers were, they weren't just executing him just for fun. Here is a criminal, a robber. Goodness knows how many people he's harmed. He has done nothing. He simply asks. And it's given. Empty-handed, he asks. This is getting to this great theme of the Bible that that, that eternal life, that forgiveness, that everything that God wants to bless us with comes by grace. Uh, we are saved, we're rescued by grace alone. And to say we're saved by grace alone just means to, to say we're saved by God alone. It's not, it's, grace isn't a thing, it's not a gas or a substance. or a, it's, it's just an attitude of God. It means he does all the work. Look at the company that Jesus is keeping here. Remember the placard above his head? Here is the king of the Jews. Here is the king of the Jews. And and who is courteous? Maybe that's why Pilate decided to crucify the three together. To again kind of add mockery. King of the Jews. And here's your court. Here's your grand vizier and your butler. Here are your chief servants. Robbers. Thieves. The scum of society. But however much Pilate might have been trying to mock Jesus, it was actually God who'd arranged things this way. Uh, Just flick back one page in the Bible to chapter 22 and verse 37, 22 and verse 37. Uh, We're we're the night before now, it's a Thursday night, and Jesus knows he's going to the cross. And Jesus says to the disciples, I tell you, verse 37, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, this scripture, this Old Testament prophecy must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes Isaiah, and he, Jesus, was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah uh, chapter 53. Uh, All of that chapter, although it's 700, 720 years before Jesus even came onto the scene that Isaiah was written. That whole chapter is about Jesus' death, prophesying it, predicting it. And at the end of that chapter, we read that he, Jesus, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. But how does the verse go on? It's not just that he was counted among them. There you go, one, two, three sinners, three bad people stuck together in death. The verse goes on, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Those are the right kind of people for Jesus to be crucified with. Because those are exactly the kind of people he came to rescue. He came to bear their sin. As Jesus entered the world at his birth, remember the the Christmas story, it's all angels, isn't it? And wise men and glory. Angel choirs singing to the shepherds on the hillsides. Wise men bringing gold, frankincense and myrrh. He enters the world with angels singing, wise men bringing riches. He leaves the world while surrounded by criminals, thieves, robbers. And that is entirely right. Here is Christ among the bandits and out of his own choice. This is God's plan. This is what always was intended to happen. 
What has a thief done? Nothing. He just asks. That is all God asks of you this morning. No need to bring anything. Come empty-handed and just ask. Lord, I admit, I have nothing to bring to you. I am a sinner. I have not lived as I ought to. Lord, I believe that Jesus is my only hope. I come to you. Forgive me. That's all he asks. And Jesus will say to you, today, today, today you will be with me. Hopefully you might not be in paradise just yet. If you die today, you will be. One day you'll be in paradise. But today you will be with me. Today you'll be forgiven. Today, just like that, you'll be one of my children. What has a thief done? Nothing. What has Jesus done? Finally, well, the second thief gets it. Jesus has switched places with him. Again, let me try and be as simple as I can be. I heard this from a, from a much older preacher, and I'm going to steal it because I like it. Uh, he said this, there are, there are three, three crosses. One, two, three. Jesus in the middle, uh, a robber on the left, a robber on the right. Uh, look at the robber who, who hates Jesus, who, who just shouts at Jesus. As you look at that cross, what do you see? You see a robber, uh, and in him is sin. He has sin in him, because he's a human being. We all do. And he is, has sin on him, the guilt of that sin. Sin in that robber and sin on him, the condemnation, the punishment. Uh, look at the next cross, uh, the other thief. What do we see? Well, again, we see a thief with sin in him. He is a criminal. He's fallen short like all of us. But there is no sin on that second thief, that thief that has called out to Jesus for mercy. Why not? Because in the middle is a third cross. And on the third cross is Jesus, the son of God. And there is no sin in him. He is sinless. But he has willingly taken the sin of the other thief on him and died in his place. We all have sin in us. That is not the question this morning. The question is not, have you got rid of all sin from your life? The answer is no. And you won't do. Not until you die or Jesus returns. The question is, is your sin still on you? Or is it on Jesus? And on the cross as Jesus hangs there, he says, put it on me. Or we might even say, I wonder whether this is... I wonder whether, it's, whether to say this or not, whether it's treading too far, but let, let me risk it. Might we even say there are three thieves crucified? Three thieves on the cross rather than just two? Or perhaps better, three men who take what is not theirs? Three men who, who take what does not belong to them? Take unasked what does not belong to them? Two men selfishly, two men seeking their own good, their own enrichment, their own glory. One man taking, unasked, the guilt of millions on his shoulders. Paying the price, taking the punishment. So go back to those taunts. He saved others, let him save himself. Save yourself and us. It is not that he can't save himself but that he won't he chooses not to in order that he can save you if jesus came down from that cross you could not go to heaven it is that simple 
because Jesus did not come down from that cross, you can go to heaven if you will come to him like, like the thief does. Come to him empty-handed. He, he chose to hang there. God's son chose to hang there. God in the flesh, choking, dying, suffocating, so that you might have glory, forgiveness. He, he chose to drink every last drop of judgment and condemnation down. The, the condemnation that should have been yours, so that you can be freely forgiven. He chose to, to be counted as the absolute scum of society. He said to God, treat me like the human trafficker. Treat me like the paedophile, the thief. Treat me like the proud religious man who puts on a good front with his friends, but is angry and vile at home. Treat me like the, the crowd staggering out of the clubs at 2 a.m., pairing off to sleep with whoever it happens to be that week. Treat me like the, the drunkard and the druggie. Treat me like the secular atheist who, who mocks the church. Treat me like the Islamic terrorist seeking uh, to, to dominate through violence. Treat me like the Russian warlord taking lives unjustly for his own pride. Jesus says to God, uh, treat me as if I had done those things. Let me bear the guilt. That is why Jesus is crucified with the thieves. He's saying these are the kind of people I am dying for. And so you're welcome this morning too. Now don't mishear me. Only one of those thieves, as far as we know, entered glory. Not because one was better than the other, but because one came empty-handed and asked. One refused and what asked? What did the thief who went to heaven do? Nothing. What did Jesus do? Everything. Paid it all. What's it like to meet God when you're helpless? Perhaps this morning you, you, you feel like you've got nothing to bring. Perhaps you're aware of all the things you've done wrong, the guilt that weighs you down. And perhaps you just feel spiritually dry, like there's no love, no joy, no spiritual fervor perhaps you're unsure about so many things you don't understand the Christian life well Jesus just says come just come look at the thief pinned that's all you need to do nothing it is free grace it's so hard to get this into our head there's an old hymn that has the verse cast your deadly doing down down at Jesus' feet, stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Cast your deadly doing down. You don't need to do. We say, oh, I need to really repent. I need to be very sorry for my sin. Well, you're meant to be sorry for your sin, but you won't do it properly. Have you properly repented of your sin? No. Have you seen every sin in your life? No. Do you, do you hate it with the horror you're meant to hate it with? No. We say, well, I'm meant to believe. And yes, you are meant to believe. Do you believe 100% without... You know, without failure, without crack, there's no doubts? No. Don't look to your repentance as if that is what gets you in. Or even look to your faith as if that's sort of the, the chip you pay to get in, the last little bit that you contribute. Look to Jesus and say, I've got nothing. And in saying, I've got nothing, you are exercising faith. That is faith. Faith is not a thing. It is an empty hand. Perhaps for the first time this morning, you need to do that, A, B, C. I admit I've fallen short. 
I deserve to be cast off by you, God. I believe Jesus is the son of God who died for me. I come empty-handed and ask for salvation. Why not pray that this morning? And he will forgive. Or perhaps you're just an exhausted Christian. You're so aware of everything you've done wrong. You know, you became a Christian years ago, you thought. But you just haven't kept it up. Haven't lived the life you should have lived. God now is fundamentally disappointed with you. Oh, no. It remains grace. It begins grace and it remains grace. That hymn again has a later verse. Weary, working, burdened one. Is that you this morning? Weary, working, burdened one. Wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done long, long ago. Come rest in me, says Jesus. It was done before you were born. It was done 2,000 years ago. Your acceptance, your forgiveness. It is complete in me. So just come and I will welcome you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can't begin to understand uh, what you went through uh, for our sake. That first Easter, uh, we confess we uh, think of our, our sin and the, and the judgment that it brings very lightly. We, we don't see its seriousness. Uh, we confess we've become comfortable with the idea of the cross, that it's become just a symbol. And we've forgotten the horror and the shame of what it meant for you. But we praise you and we thank you that despite our waywardness, our forgetfulness, despite our lack of zeal, our lack of goodness, you died for us. And that all you ask of us is nothing to come empty-handed. I pray perhaps for some for the first this morning, time this morning, they would come and you would grant them that gift of forgiveness. They would hear those words of assurance Today you will be with me. We praise you for the simplicity of the gospel and pray you'd keep us in it all the days of our life. Amen.